Hello and welcome to episode 250 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now, here we are, episode 250. For me, that's a huge milestone and I want to celebrate it in style. If you remember back in episode 200, I got my dad to join me. That was the way for me to celebrate that huge occasion. And for me, episode 250 is really significant. I've been thinking for a while, who do I want on the podcast to celebrate this episode? It needs to be someone that means a hell of a lot to me personally. I really want it to be someone that I followed for many years and just someone that I've been basically wanting to talk to since starting the podcast. So I'm absolutely thrilled to announce that on today's episode, I'm joined by the silver chair drummer, Ben Gillies. Silverchair for me are one of the most influential bands that I've ever come across. During my time at secondary school and college, they were the band I always had in my Walkman. Frog Stomp for me is one of the best debut albums of all time. It absolutely blew my mind that the band was so young and writing such incredible songs, amazing riffs and just getting to basically be the coolest band on the planet. I remember myself standing in front of a mirror with a guitar, wishing I was Daniel Johns, playing along to stuff like Frog Stomp, Freak Show. And it's because of Silverchair, I then went on to listen to bands like Helmet, Deftones, Nine Inch Nails. They really were that band that influenced all the bands I listen to today. I was in a band when I was a kid called Oracle, and genuinely, the three of us, me, Ben and Ben, would sit there and in rehearsals mostly play covers from Silverchair. We would sit there playing stuff like Tomorrow, Fault Line, and that's what we did. We would go and do small gigs, bigger gigs, and tour the country, and always play Silverchair covers. I remember when we played with bands like Gold Newt back in the day, and there was this event called Friday Night Live, and all the bands that were playing between us would probably have about seven or eight Silverchair songs on the set list. It was this movement that everyone loved. They were such an influenced and loved band, and everyone adored them. So to know that I can sit here today and talk to the drummer of one of my favourite bands ever, ask all those amazing questions, find out about the making of Frog Stomp, Freak Show, the incredible album Neon Ballroom, and of course I ask the killer question that I've been waiting to ask Silverchair my whole life. Will there ever be a time that we'll see them play again? So stick around for that interview which will be coming up in just a couple of moments time. But before we get to that interview... Let's touch base and talk about the last episode. On episode 249, I was joined by the film director, Jamie Adams. We got to sit down and talk all about his brand new film, She Is Love. I've seen the reviews for this film and it's just come out now and it's getting some amazing reviews. People are loving the chemistry on set and just absolutely adoring the performances. And this is everything we talked about on the interview. It's a great film and go and check it out. But today, it's all about episode 250. I won't lie, I've been trying to get Ben on this podcast for a couple of years. When I first started Mark and Me, Silverchair were top of my list. I've always wanted to try and get him on the podcast. But these things take time, dedication, a lot of effort. And eventually, if you're persistent and work hard, these things pay off. And I'm so grateful for Ben for coming on the podcast. So what I want to do now is to get straight to the interview. So here's me and Ben talking all things music. Again, 
So Ben, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thanks for having me. Ben, what I like to do is take it right back to the start, and I'm talking the real early days. Um, tell me about when you were growing up. What were those first records you remember buying with your pocket money that made you fall in love with music? Um, one of the very first songs I remember my dad showing to me, I think it was called like The Baby Elephant Walk. Does that ring a bell? I'm sure it was called Doesn't... The Baby Elephant. I'm sure it was called The Baby Elephant Walk. And I remember it really sparked some curiosity in me in music. Um, I remember, I, I do remember buying Paula Abdul's Opposites Attract on yep. vinyl, um, you know, and I was, uh, loved the film clip with the animated cats. Um, I also, there was some Australian artists I think I bought, like, um like baby animals and maybe maybe even some like cold chisel um but i think for me that the real like light bulb moment that kind of changed my life was um was led zeppelin so my my dad was a very big led zeppelin fan and he he would um just keep kind of peppering me with it. Like, why don't you listen to a bit of Led Zeppelin? Why don't you listen to Led Zeppelin? I was like, whatever, old man, you don't know what you're talking about. And um, obviously he did. And um, eventually I, um, I guess when I reached a certain level of musical maturity, I kind of, it just clicked for me. And, and I fell in love with Zeppelin and, and just became obsessed. It was like, everything else just fell by the wayside for at least a few months. And it was just Zeppelin, 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 Zeppelin. Um, and I think by that stage I was playing drums as well um, because I started playing drums at eight years old and <clears throat> became obsessed with John Bonham. And um, yeah, that kind of, or, I think I think Led Zeppelin really did kind of form the found my musical foundation from that moment you know um i think before that it just felt like i was kind of reaching into the the toy box and just you know trying to pick out stuff that i might like but that was the moment that you know really changed everything for me what a foundation as well like you know the beatles rolling stones led zeppelin they're the bands that are gonna like never ever get old you know led zeppelin when I watch back their Blu-rays and DVDs now, their performances, no one ever touches that, does it? It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I think there's a I guess one of the one of the things that I relate to in Zeppelin that I think I'm and by by no means am I comparing Silverchair to Led Zeppelin, but I think I can recognise the synergy of the band. Yeah. Um in Zeppelin. And I think that's that's what made it so magical. Um, and there was, you know, I, I think, um, you know, that that's kind of something as a musician that you really, that you aspire to, you know, to, to be part of something that can feel like that. So to have to, you know, to, to then be able to go on and have an experience with two mates, um, you know, and have that kind of, that, that kind of synergy within a band, um, you know, and that kind of chemistry, like, um, it makes it, it you, like I guess it it helps you understand why bands like Led Zeppelin, you know, were so popular and so 
fucking good. Like they were so good. They just, they were so good. I mean, then they were, they were before my time, you know, like they, they were no longer a band by the time no. I was. So, but still like, man, I, I remember I call actually, there was two things with, with Silverchair's manager. Um, and I remember, cause I, you know, so there is with any job there's perks, right? So I remember calling up what I, one of them was to meet James Brown, which I, which I was lucky enough to do. Um, and the other one was, um, I remember calling him and basically or emailing him, whatever it was and saying, um, when Zeppelin basically reformed with Jason Bonham, look, I knew it wouldn't be quite the same because it's just, you know, it had to, to, to truly be Led Zeppelin, it has to be John Bonham, but you know, Jason's an, an amazing drummer as well. Yeah. He's, he's still got his dad's feel. Um, when they announced they were doing some show, this is quite a few years ago in, in the UK, I remember calling my manager saying, you know, if you can do anything to get me a ticket to that, even if it's one ticket, I do not care where I am on the planet. I will, I will, <laughs> I will make my way there. I will, I will get there somehow. But I think by that stage it was too late and um, it was just, you know, can you imagine how many people, you know, try wanted tickets to that bloody show? A one-off as well. It wasn't like it was a tour or a festival. It was a one-off show. I know. What a tease. Like, come on, guys. Like, you're all out there still, like, playing music. And, you know, like, you see, um, didn't, um, like, Jimmy Page and, and uh, John Paul Jones, like, they did a, they did some gigs. Like, they got up with the Fooies a couple of times. Yeah, I saw them at Wembley, and uh, they joined Dave Grohl on stage. And I was like, God, there's two out of three. You know, just one more instead on the vocals. And we could have got Zeppelin yeah. here. Stick Grohl on drums. Yeah, you know, and Robert Plant, like he's so, I, I, and I actually, personally, I, I love Robert Plant. I think he, he's, um, he's so awesome. How he, he, he just keeps playing music. It's up to me, and the perception of Robert Plant is he just keeps doing what he does because he loves it, and he doesn't care where he plays. He doesn't no. care if it's like if he's playing to twenty thousand people or a thousand people in a little like smoky club somewhere in the middle of Europe. Like he's just, he's, he's just so into it. And I just love that. So come on guys. just He, he just doesn't do live that. too far from me. And we have little like dingy pubs and stuff that have folk nights and acoustic nights and um, yeah. open mic nights. And quite often you'll see him in there having a beer, just watching young folk bands or now and then he'll get up and just do a song and no, he never announces that he's going to be there. He just kind of goes along with the crack. He's so, he's so rad. Actually, we, that was one of my, um, um, fanboy moments. We, we played a show, it was in Zurich and, um, we were on some backstage to playing really early in the day. It was funny, our, our trajectory in Europe was really different to how it was in Australia and the U S which was really fast and really, it took off really quickly, but through Europe and the UK, like I, we had to. I guess we had to work out a lot, a lot harder, you know, to get in front of, get in front of people. Um, but so we played early in the day, but um, the page and plant were doing like their thing in the nineties and they were playing on the main stage and we were, we were backstage at the main stage. And I remember, I think our dads were on tour with us at the time. 
And I remember Jimmy Page and Robert Plant were standing like just literally like within 20 meters of us. And I was like kind of looking over at them going like, they're right there. <laughs> they are right there. All I need to do is walk over there, introduce myself and say hello. That's, and that's like, how fucking easy is that? You know, like how, as a human being, how easy is it to go over to someone and just say, hey, I really love your music and I appreciate what you've done. I just wanted to come and say hi and shake their hand. And and the funny thing is, I, I imagine people have had that same experience with us and Silverchair. Of course. Um, but to be, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan as well. I'm a fan of music. And I completely wimped out and I didn't do it. Oh, man. I wanted I that story to go a different way that you walked over and you had a good time and then they watched your set and then you had a beer and like, oh wow. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know what, that gig was probably, that's probably in gigs of all time, seeing them, that for some reason there was just, there was a magic in the air that night. Um, it was, it was, it was, re- it was really good. We did eventually meet um, Jimmy Page, funnily enough. Um, but when we, we didn't let that opportunity go, that was in Brazil because they worked with, um, oh, Kevin Shirley, who produced, uh, Frog Stomp, yeah. um, had done some work on some Led Zeppelin stuff and he just happened, Kevin just happened to be in Brazil when we were there doing a tour, um, hanging out with Jimmy and we happened to meet up with Kevin just to say hello. And he was like, Hey, do you guys want to meet Jimmy? <laughs> Fucking yeah. hell. You know, and we we'd we we'd had the experience in Zurich, so that time we knew the answer straight away. We're like, yes, yes, we would like to meet Jimmy Page, please. So we went. Um, he was hanging out at like the hotel pool with a couple of like, you know, nice looking Brazilian girls yeah. hanging off him. And um, anyway, we uh, we sat down and we chatted to him for um, I don't know, twenty minutes about. Oh, music. that's awesome. Yeah, so that you know, we we got we got to tick that box, which was cool. You you mentioned Frog Stomp, and I grew up, and it was one of the first albums I bought. I'm 40 now, so I remember buying it and thinking, "Fucking hell, this band are amazing!" And I I couldn't believe that you were so young, you know, at 15 and 16 to be writing these songs and going out there. It sounds crazy, but did you guys? have chance to step back and kind of see how it was evolving so quickly and how you blew up because you were so young you were probably quite naive at that age you were quite kind of not experienced because you're so young and still kind of finding your teenage self but you were blowing up to be one of the biggest bands in australia from such a kind of overnight did was it was it really hard to get your head around at that age yeah um i think the the pace at which the band took off was, it was, uh, it was a really odd experience. Um, I mean, you know, within six months, like we were just school kids. And then I remember there was one gig, um, we did in Melbourne, um, what's it called at Luna park in Melbourne. And I remember walking on stage and like the screaming was just so mind bogglingly loud that you know, you could, you could hardly hear the instruments and, um, it was, it was kind of weird to get your head around, but I think we were so focused on the music and we were really young and naive. And I think the combo of those two things meant that 
all that extra stuff wasn't what made it important wasn't important you know it was we were just it was it was because of the of the music that we were playing and that that's 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 what that was what was driving us um you know where i think mate you know maybe we definitely had ambition there's no doubt like we you know we, we wanted to be a great band and we um and we rehearsed a lot and we um you know we we definitely wanted to be successful um but at the core of of what we were doing we wanted to be a great band yeah and i think because of that and be, and we wanted to make great music and we wanted to be a great live band i remember always talking to dan about dan and i would always talk about that we want to be known as a great live band um so i think because because that was our focus core focus even at that age um that all the extra stuff um you know it was like don't get me wrong like the success means it, it can't the success feeds the next steps you can take you know it means you can you can take like um more risks or you can or you can be more experimental or you can you know you, you, it, then you can kind of start balancing the creativity and finance finance as well like if you're making money from it you can feed it back into the band and so you know all those things start to happen but i think at that early at that young age um being naive and being so focused on being a great band and making the best music we could at the time was you know made everything else kind of fade into the background that's fair and i mean once you'd kind of left your mark on the industry with this debut album it took off you got to play with bands like red hot chili peppers and start touring around the world and you know you've had your parents with you because you're so young you kind of have that pressure of like how do we follow this how do we take it up a notch because we've left such a complete huge kind of mark with our debut so the moment you kind of sat there and thought right freak show how do we take this up for me i remember queuing up outside virgin megastore back then when everyone wanted cds and i was queuing up to get freak show and they played it in the shop and i heard the opening riff of slave and instantly i was like "Fuck, they've they've nailed it instantly just off the dead 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 i was like oh man like this is it and the journey <laughs> that that the journey that album took me on then you got freak and abused me and all this i was like the drum sounds the production and everything you you must be so proud that you didn't just kind of have this one hit wonder you would like took it up a notch and daniel's writing got deeper and the musicianship got more and you had more instruments it must be amazing that under all that pressure you you achieved that second album that a lot of bands fail at yeah i i think at the time there was definitely a, a sense of pressure that you have to follow up and we'd never anticipated that either but there was definitely a sense of pressure that you have to follow up such a big success but again in in hindsight and with a bit of age and wisdom I guess what we didn't realize is that we had so much room to grow and to improve that, you know, that we were, we probably, we were probably in, in the best position to be able to come up with something, you know, that was more challenging again. And, 
Um, because obviously, as as musicians, you know, when you're 14 years old, you're still, you know, you're not an accomplished musician at 14 years. I don't think, you know, most people ever become a, an accomplished musician. Like, I think, you know, if true, true musicians, I think, are always trying to improve and, and try new things. But I, particularly at that age, like, you've got so much learning to do. Um, so... You know, I, I think we we had we had plenty of headroom to be able to to back up Frog Stomp, and also you know maybe it's maybe it's an age thing as well. Like that we were just we were just doing what we were what we loved, you know. And um, but yeah, there were look there were there were definitely different factors. The first record was just a bunch of songs that we wrote and we rehearsed and played, and we weren't doing it for there was, you know, we weren't thinking about putting out a record or or backing up anything that we'd done previously. So there was something very raw and and honest and about that record. But you know, there were definitely other factors in every album after that because then you know you've got, um, I guess, there's certain expectations. There's record companies, so there are other things that come into it, but. Um, I mean, from, for me, like, I think it's, it's important to try not to think about that stuff and just make the music that makes you feel good and that you want to play because otherwise, you know, you'll, you'll make compromises. That That's amazing. I think because you're so involved in it and you were there and you were quite young still at that age. You didn't have hindsight to look back on so you weren't like oh well maybe we'll do this or maybe we'll do that or we'll try something else you were just doing it for the music and i think that's what showed because you went out there with a point to prove i'm sure you had support slots at that point with bands that were bigger that you wanted to make sure that people that were paying to go and see that band would take note of you and hopefully leave that gig that night with fucking hell that support band silverchair were amazing i'm gonna check them out you know you, you wanted to just do the best job you could yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, it's funny that I think uh, Silverchair is one of those bands that some people didn't quite, some people just got the band straight away and were fans and they were in and they loved us and they followed the journey. There were other, we did pick up a lot of fans, I think, through like those European festivals or, you know, the radio shows in the US or the big day out in Australia or the support slots for, for bigger bands. Um, because we, we were so focused on being good live. I think we were, I think we're a great live band. Yeah. When people saw us, it's like they had that same moment I had with Zeppelin. Like they, they kind of got it, you know, they're like, oh, now I understand what these guys are about. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. It was always, it always amazed me how many new fans we pick up after doing those festivals or the support slots and no i I get your point it's it's the fact that when you saw the songs live it was a different experience and you kind of you 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 get it something clicks i think when you see a band live yeah i don't think yeah it's not it's certainly not a uh a silver chair centric thing i think it, it does it happens not for all bands but there are a lot of bands that if you know, you might hear their record and be like, oh, yeah, they're, you know, they're cool. They're, they're doing something that I kind of like. But, yeah, if you see them live, then all of a sudden, you know, you're on, you just, you're all in. For me, 
at that point when I was growing up and I bought Freak Show and I heard the way that three of you could make so much noise and it was like, okay, there's not three or four guitarists in this band. It's not like Pearl Jam where there's five people. It's like just three of them. But they're tight as fuck. They're really knowing what they want. Dan's vocals are leading it here really well. Great melody. I was thinking, how do you top this? And when Neon Ballroom came out, which is one of my favorite albums of all time, I think Emotion Sickness is probably my one of my favorite songs ever. The fact you had all the piano arrangements, the orchestra, and everything else took it up. At that point, what was it like? Because you were playing festivals, you were touring the world. I saw you on that tour at Nottingham and then Reading Festival that year. And it really felt like you were at your peak at that point. Like no one was then saying, oh, Silverchair, just a bunch of young lads trying to be Black Sabbath or something like this. It was like, fuck, like they've shown that they've got more than just riffs they're pulling out these melodies and some of the piano arrangements for some of the songs on that album and everything is is genuinely a masterpiece yeah actually the guy i can't remember his last name larry who wrote the the piano piece for david healthcott on um emotional sickness even when i first heard that like you know i was like like that that is incredible (laughs) even even to see when um it was it was really cool that the day that david healthcott came in to play um, that part on emotion sickness. And I'll tell you the crazy part about when David Helfcott played on emotion sickness is I don't think I could be wrong. Um, but my recollection and my thinking was that he had not seen the music. So he, the first time David Helfcott saw the music was on the day that he fucking hell. I think so. I, that, that, that could be wrong, but, um, I, and I remember him going through it and like, so he was like, oh, look, I'll do the left hand rather than play it. I, I think he, I don't think he played it as one, like his left and right hand together. Yeah. I think he played the left hand first and then he did the, the higher stuff on his right hand over the top of it. Um, just so he could really nail the part. Um, surely that, surely that can't be, surely that must be some, like story that i just made up in my head i'm sure if it's a made-up story i love it but um that piano arrangement it's it's all over the shop you listen to it it's like you could never try and play along on the piano it's fucking crazy but it works and it it goes so well that song's a, a journey and it takes you all places but i was worried when i bought that album that when i came to see you in nottingham would it still sound as good because you had all the layers and the string sections and everything but you nailed it the moment you came on and started with emotion sickness and you played stuff like uh, miss you love and all that it had the depth i think you had other musicians on stage at that point you'd evolved a bit but you said you just said you know you thought you were a great live band you were fucking phenomenal you know that night i left there thinking fucking hell like i wish they were playing more often because you guys only came to the uk now and then you know yeah yeah yeah. well yeah definitely at at, at that point because there there was a lot more complexity in the songs we were we did have other musicians kind of helping to fill those you know a lot of the strings and piano parts but i think the core of the you know and i think this is why silverchair that the important thing about silverchair that made it silverchair was the core um, of Daniel, Chris and I's, you know, if we were locked in and tight and we were the, we were that foundation then all that stuff, all the other tinsel and all that, all the other bits and pieces, you know, it, it kind of, um, it, it gave it something to kind of lock into. 
But yeah, you know, it's, look, I think you know we 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 worked really hard for the for the for those live shows. We rehearsed a lot, and um, we spent a lot of time getting the right musos, and um, um, you know, and even even as as the albums went on, like even for Diorama, I remember we had we had a guy actually his name is Julian Hamilton who ended up co-writing some stuff on um, Young Modern. He to get it even closer to the album, he took the original orchestral parts from the from the original recording and sampled it. Um, but I, I don't know. I technically don't know how the hell he did it. But he sampled it in a way so if there was any variation in the speed, because I you know we didn't play the clicks, no. So it was all, it was all very natural. So and there's you know there's naturally variation in the speed every, you know, on different nights, you know, some, some nights, in, you know, particularly for me, I might be really excited during a song if we're having a good gig. So I, I'm naturally pushing it a little bit more than I normally would, you know? Um, but yeah, Julian had, um, he had the orchestral parts sampled and cut up so he could play it on his pit, on his uh, keyboard. Um, but, it didn't matter if the song was a little quicker or a little slower, but it would still, it would still be in time with the the rest of the band. It's incredible. And you just talked about Diorama and Young Modern. Going into Young Modern, did you guys? I don't want to focus on negativity, but obviously the cracks were starting to happen with Daniel's health and everything else, and all the stuff that went with the band. Did you go into that album knowing it was your final album mentally, or were you kind of just still going into it hoping that you know it was still going to be a longer journey? Um, yeah, I mean, every Silverchair record I went into thinking it was it was like it wasn't our last. I mean, we started working on a sixth record. Um, so yeah, no, there's, there was definitely no, at no point did I think this is our last record, um, on, on Young Modern. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we had a, we had a ball making that record. It was, I mean, look, there was, there was moments when, uh, you know, like, like any job and like any record and like any music, there are struggles and there are moments where you have to work hard and it might be, it might be tough. You know, but I, you know, if you want to do anything in life that you're, that you come out the other side of and you're proud of, and you know, it's it's never, it's generally, you know, you got to work for it, and um, you know, but I, you know, the, the my memories of making that record were were a really good ones. Like we we stayed at this house, it was a suburban house in the valley, in um, Los Angeles. And it had a like we all stayed in the house together and it had a pool and the, the the studio was just in the garage. Like it was tiny. Um you know, compared to what we'd done on the previous records when you're in these big like particularly 301 where we did Diorama that was like this um it wasn't a corporate studio, but you know, it was a big production the scale studio. of it was huge, yeah. The scale was massive, you know, where, you know, for, for, um, for young modern, for the, for the, for the band tracks at the very least, you know, was, was basically done in a, a garage. It was a good, it was a really good studio. I had the quality, like, you know, the, 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 the world-class quality gear in there, but the size of it was tiny. Uh, I mean, I think the drum room was like, 
you know, it was it was the, the size of a bedroom. Wow. We opened the doors up and had some kind of room mics out in the other, in the, in the larger space. But even then, in the larger space was like, you know, that's where Dan and Chris were basically, they, they, they were only a few metres from each other when we played the, the band tracks together. Um, so, yeah, I love that, though. I love the intimacy of that. I love the fact that you weren't in this massive, complete, huge studio. The fact that you were all, like, kind of going back to your roots a little bit, if that makes sense. 100% yeah I, I, well and I never understood on all of the all all of the the first um four records what we would do is we would always we'd always play as a band to get the the bass to get the bass um drum track not yeah that's we'd always play to get together to get the the drum track yeah and then we'd everything would be built off that and then the guitars would be redone and the bass would be redone and everything else would be kind of re-recorded over the top of it. And I, I never quite understood it because I always thought to myself, why wouldn't we just keep that first core recording of the three of us together? And then if Dan's made any mistakes or Chris has made any mistakes or there, if there's any parts that they, that they don't particularly like, just go and go back and, you know, drop in and re-record it that yeah that bar, bar or whatever um but we still never did it but when we got to young modern we really kind of made a point of saying no we want to whatever whatever the band plays as a band for that kind of core track we want to keep that as the the basis of the whole song i love it so yeah so a lot of those a lot of those um well, I think most of the tracks on Young Modern, like the bass, drums, and guitar, are, are, are you know, probably. I mean, you know, most bands do this. It's probably a combination of a couple of the best takes. You know, you take, you might take a chorus from yeah. from take two and put it however you, however you edit it together. But the core of it was all done, all done as one band in one moment, which I think, you know, I think that's the that's the, the 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 beauty of silver chair is when you capture that moment it's more of a performance then isn't it it's more of a collective i think it's just yeah it comes across as more of a an experience not just you know layer upon layer upon layer building up it doesn't if it's not artificial because that the final product is still what you want but it just feels more of a, a genuine organic performance yeah and you feed off each other you know yeah. i think when you're in a band like you um, you know, part of that magic and part of that synergy is is kind of you know you'll just look at you'll you'll kind of look over at someone you'll be like, yeah, this is the one like we're in we're 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 in the pocket in this one, you know, or it's where it's you know you you'll have that moment where you know none of us are thinking, all thought has left the building and you're just pure instinct, and you just capture this moment and yeah. you're like yeah. That's the one, and you can, it's funny when it happens. You can listen back to like five or six takes of the same song, and you know the moment. You go, yeah, "Well, that's the one." I just I remember that moment because like we you felt we it. Thinking, yeah, we weren't thinking about it. We were just, you know, you were we in just, the moment, weren't you? You knew it. It was that. It was this is the feeling of that's the one. Yeah, that's it. Nothing else exists except for me, you know, performing with you guys and having this moment together. 
and it's being captured on tape, and then you hear it back and you go, well, fuck, that's pretty sick. <laughs> I love it. When it finally ended and the band announced their official, you know, Silvertro No More, how long did it take for you to actually mentally accept that? Because since such a young age, it was all you did. It was performing, writing, being with your best two friends, going around the world, playing the biggest festivals, headlining the festivals. The, the fact that someone kind of took it away from you and it was gone. It's 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 bigger than like a, a divorce. It's bigger than a breakup. It's like something's gone from you, isn't it? It's like that that was my purpose. That was my existence. So how did you body and your mind react to that? Um, I I guess disappointment. Um I mean look, the band the official line from the band is that we went on a a um indefinite hiatus. But we never actually made an official statement after that saying that we'd broken up. It was just kind of, I don't know, it was just all a bit of a mess after that. So, yeah, it's been, I don't know how, I don't know how to articulate it. It's just been really disappointing. Does it feel like there was ever any hope in that time? It's been a long time now, but did it ever feel like maybe that phone would ring and it might be you and Dan saying, let's do it again, or Chris saying he misses it too, or that was, there could be something, or was it just like a flame that just went out? Look, I think, yeah, I, I think there was, you know, for a time there, I thought with time you know that we could all you know find a place where maybe it's something that we miss particularly that musical connection yeah um, because it's i mean for me anyway you know i've played with a bunch of musicians since and i mean it's it's just not the same and um which is and it's which is sad and 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 it's you know it is disappointing but also life goes on you know like I, I personally for me like in Silverchair it was always about the music for me and I loved it so much and I loved playing and I loved recording and I loved creating and writing and and I just loved the whole process um you know there was some sometimes there was a bit of a drag but i don't think there's anything in life that you could that you do that doesn't have something that you kind of go it's a bit of a pain in the ass like sometimes the travel could be challenging and sometimes you didn't feel like doing interviews um but ultimately it was the music that i love so much and and the creative process so i think for me like you know the way I've the way I've dealt with it is just to one just let it go and realize that nothing lasts forever, and also that um, you know we're all on our own kind of personal journeys. Um, but as long as I have music in my life in in some way, that that's that really does satisfy me and make me feel good and. Um, whatever that is, you know, if it's sitting at my piano and having a jam or, or playing my drums or recording some music or, you know, working with a new producer that kind of um, shows me some new techniques that I hadn't thought of before or, 
whatever it is that gets me excited. But as long as as long as that's in my life, then you know, then then I'm happy. I'm all I'm, I'm musically happy. Yeah, you know, but because outside of there's also you know I think outside of music, particularly now, like um, having twin boys, like that also that's. I think that's a huge life changer. It makes you really put into perspective what's important in life. Um, you know, I think I think um, it's funny how I ha- how do I want to say this? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess having kids having kids for me has just made me. It's almost made me love music even more, you know, because I look at my boys and I just think, holy shit, I couldn't possibly love a human being any more than I love you two boys. Um, but then for some reason, it's like it's just even when I when I do get to play music and record music and and, um, you know, jump on the piano or drums or whatever it is like it's almost it's almost even more joyous than it was before. If your phone rang now and it was Dan and he said, I want to do it, I want to do a reunion, I want to come back, would you jump at it? Or now that you've stepped back and had children and your life's different, would you kind of think differently or would you just fucking be like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's get back and get that chemistry going again. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, because life has kind of moved on and, um, I mean, Dan's kind of got his own thing going on and, um, I mean, you know, there'd have to be some healing there, I think before, before we could potentially play music together again. Um, you know, at the moment, I mean, the answer would probably be no. You know, I'd probably, I think, you know, I've, I've, I'm just at a different place in my life. You know, I mean, Silverchair, Silverchair was amazing. Um, but, you know, could we find that spark again? And that would be, that would be the worry, wouldn't it? Because if you went out there and the three of you were like, let's do this. And the whole world's like, fucking hell, Silverchair are back. And then it's not great and it doesn't feel right. And the chemistry between you and Dan isn't right. And there's too much kind of, you know, too much shit that's gone on in the time. You're kind of like, ah, we don't want to tarnish the legacy we left. Yeah. And it's not even about that. It's just like, I mean, I I mean, I'm not sure if I just life just changes. I'm not sure if I want to do that again. You know, I've kind of like, my memories of Silverchair are all really good and positive ones. That's and, good. And I think all the all the experiences that we had, and there were tough times. Don't get me wrong; there were, you know. But like I said, there's, there's. I don't think there's any such thing as a, any job or anything in life where there is aren't challenges. And if you don't have those challenges, you're not going to grow and, you know, and and learn. And um, we definitely had those moments in Silverchair. Um, but yeah, I've kind of, yeah, life goes on. And I feel like, 
I'm just in a different stage in my life where I'm not sure that I'd want to open that door again. Um, it's different as well, you know, married with children, twins. You don't want to be saying, see you in six months, I'm going around the world again. You know, everything's different, isn't it? Like you said, it's you're a different person now. You think differently. You live differently. Yeah. Look, the, 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 the passion for the for what we did in Silverchair, the creation and the two, and like, I really enjoyed touring as well because, you know, you're, you're on a bus with a bunch of guys. I mean, we, we were generally, we were always an all male um, touring party. So like, you know, that was, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, when you, when you press play back at, in a studio and you hear something that you've created out of thin air, like all those things are, are amazing um but you know i mean i i I do i i do my own music creation on my own which i absolutely adore and love and do i need the touring in my life like at this point no because you know when i wake up at six o'clock in the morning and i see (laughs) smiling boys wanting a kiss and a cuddle like that just makes my heart sing yeah Uh, you know, and, and to be taken away from that because of touring, like, um, I would definitely feel like I'm missing out on something rather than the other way around. You know, I, I don't think I'm missing out on something, not touring with Silverchair. So, um, yeah, I look, I don't know, like I, the, the answer at the moment would probably, probably be no, because I think, you know, I, some things would have to change and some, you know, some bridges would have to be mended. But, you know, my, my, my line with Silverchair has always been in the wise words of Justin Bieber. You never, <laughs> say, you never say never. Amazing. I love that we got Justin Bieber in here somehow. <laughs> well, cause how, you know, and it's also, that's how I feel now. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't know how Chris and Dan feel about it. Um, you know, and I also, I also make a, you know, some, some stuff in the media gets put in front of me, but I, I, I do do my very best to stay away from, you know, stuff about silver chair in the media. Um, because it's, it's not in my world at the moment or ever could be again. So I, I do tend to kind of stay, you know, do my best to stay away from it. Um, but you never know, you never know how someone might feel um, out of all, all, the, all three of us in five or 10 years, you know. Um, do you like the fact that you're in a world now where Dan is writing music again, and he's, you know, out of the dark, and he's and are you are you in talking terms with him? Have you spoke to him recently? Because during the promotion for the Future Never tour, they had a YouTube series that was promoting it, and your name right. came up a couple of times, and it was as if you hadn't spoken, and there was still stuff to be sorted. And I just really hope that one day you two do have to sit down and kind of patch that up. Yeah, I'm. Um, I haven't really spoken to him. No. Um... I think in like 13 years, we may have spoken um, maybe like half a dozen times. Yeah. And um, yeah, and 
probably probably not the best conversations either. So yeah, I mean, we don't Dan and I just we we don't have a relationship. That's sad, you know, as a fan of your music and all this, I wish one day whoever it is can bring you guys together and just, you know, for the old times' sake and everything, just let that water go under the bridge and just be like wipe the slate clean and fuck it, we had a good time, you know? Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. You never know. Like I said, Justin Bieber is is a wise man. Hey, Dan, on the other day, I saw on Instagram, he posted one of your clips about one of your songs. I saw that on his stories and I thought, oh, fucking hell, that's good. That's positive. Yeah, I saw that too. I mean, that's, it's, I mean, Dan has never really, uh, I guess it's, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't think we need to go there. No, no, it's it's absolutely. I just it just felt positive instead of seeing stuff on the news or the media where it was like negative. It was just nice to see. It felt like a bit of fresh air. Yeah, I mean he, yeah, I mean it's not it's 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 very public. Yeah, is what is what I is instead of, I think if if um, for any relationship, in order to try and mend it in any way it needs to be private yeah that's fair and what about chris yeah. do you speak to him i I've, i don't know anything about chris anymore in this world i see dan on instagram i can see your life releasing solo music and doing stuff on spotify and music videos yeah. but is, is chris just curled into a rock and just hidden from the world chris, uh, you know what i actually do see chris a lot lovely um, yeah he and i have he and i have really uh made an effort to um nurture our friendship one thing that was pointed out to us once from our manager was there's only three guys in silver chair there's only three guys that understand what it feels like to be in that band um so you know the fact that that i don't have a relationship with dan at all um you know I, I really cherish that friendship I've, and i've always cherished the friendship with with both of the guys yeah um because of that reason like um you know I, I really cherish my friendship with chris um because he's one of my best mates and you know we've just had experiences together that that are phenomenal and we've done it from i mean chris and i met you know, I can't even remember where, when I met Chris. We we lived across the road from each other when we were kids. Like we probably met when we were, you know, it was definitely single digits, and it may have even been before we were like even five. You know, we've known each wow. other for a really long time. So, um, so yeah, so like you know, all of all of my important kind of friendships and relationships, I. I I go out of my way to to, to nurture them, and and Chris is one of those really important um friendships in my life that's amazing is he doing well is he happy is he playing music still or is he just enjoying life he's doing really well he's um he actually got into hospitality for a little for actually not even a little while for a good 10 years he um he had a couple of restaurants and um he was the big boss and um yeah he was always he was always a real foodie his nickname on tour was truffles <laughs> truffles <laughs> yeah because he, he could always um 
Chris could always sniff out like a really good, um, a really good, like, you know, culinary experience in whatever city we were in. He would, he would always be able to find somewhere cool to go and, and check out and eat or, you know, a cool watering hole or whatever he, he was, that, that was his thing. So it definitely felt like a, a natural progression for him to, um, to get into hospitality, but um, he, he's actually he's actually just recently got out of that, and he's um, um, yeah, he's kind of he's got a couple of kids, and he he's living on uh, he's living on a bit of land in in Australia, and he's he's just um, he's 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 kind of just cruising in I'd, I'd say third gear, but maybe he's even in second gear. You know, he's just really pulled it back, and he's just cruising along and. Um, I've managed to drag him into the studio a couple of times. Oh, nice. Uh, just have a bit of a jam. And he, and he did, he did contact me, um, cause he'd had a big move recently up to a new, new place. And, um, he contacted me and said, Hey, what do you think I should do for a bit of a recording setup? Like, what are you using? What's something just nice and simple? And I was like, Ooh, mate, are we, are we? You get back in. We're gonna have. We're gonna have a jam. We're gonna do this. So um, I do. I do keep hassling him, saying, "Come on, let's just have a play." Ah, oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, it's good fun. It's it is it is. I mean, it's always good fun when we all get together and play. But yeah, we'll see. Maybe. See, that's a nice positive way to end this interview. I'm loving that. That sounds like a bit of hope. With just you two just jamming, that'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, you know what? One of the great things about Silverchair was I always thought it was our sound checks, and I re- I regretted it so much. I wish I I wish I started early on. Um, was like recording our sound checks. Yeah. Because generally, what would happen at a sound check? The drums would be first then the bass and then Dan would come out. So, you know, it's, it's like, it's almost like the same layer cake of a, of a recording, you know? Yeah. Um, so you come out, you do, you go through the kit, then you play some time and then Chris would come out, his rig would be all ready. He'd start playing some stuff in front of house would be getting it all sorted. You know, after a while, once that was sorted, Dan would wander out, play a bit of stuff, <clears throat> but we just play random shit. We wouldn't play songs. Like we'd eventually play a song. We'd be like, okay, now let's, you know, do whatever, you know, Miss You Love or what. Yeah. I, I can't remember. But we'd say, okay, now we have to play a song to make sure all the levels are cool. But for a big chunk of getting just the bass sounds, we'd be just like jamming on like, you know, beats and riffs and whatever. And sometimes we'd just sit in these pockets and you'd be there going like, you'd be kind of looking at each other going like, Fuck man, that is cool as shit. Oh, amazing. You know, yeah, and like we should have recorded them because Yeah, like, we need to document them and then they could have been future songs or riffs or parts that yeah, you're totally, just... There totally would have been some songs in there. There was some really cool vibes that were just um and I, I there's I couldn't tell I couldn't possibly tell you what they were because they were just in the moment and they were oh. just and because we were sound checking as well, like you didn't care. We didn't give a shit. No. So we were just kind of fucking around. And but because we didn't care, like the stuff that we were doing was just so friggin' rad. I loved it. And but yeah. 
one thing you mentioned one thing you mentioned on today's interview and i have to ask because i might not ever get the opportunity to talk with you again but you talked about um album number six was you know you were starting to put some work to that where where was it going was it going to go down the lines of going back to your roots a bit more was it getting heavier was it getting more experimental was it getting a bit electronic i never knew where you were going to go after um album number five i always thought to myself where, where are they going to go after uh young modern is it going to is it going to go a bit more radiohead and a bit more atmospheric or is it going to get a bit more grungy or where, where was it going <laughs> um well i get we it was probably one of the first times we went we'd been into this actually it was probably the first time we went into the studio without any real songs yeah so um you know on on those first couple of records like you know there were tracks that dan and i'd worked on together and then you know dan obviously um became like the musical director for the last couple um and for i I don't know i don't know how it happened i think it was our management were basically like you know i think you guys should just get in the studio and see what happens so you know, Dan didn't come in with any songs. There was no, there was no nothing. So we went, we literally went into the studio and just said, let's just see what happens. And, um, and we just started kind of jamming and mucking around and, and coming up with these cool ideas. And, um, the style of it was like, it was kind of futuristic, but at the same time it had this like, it had this um, kind of uh, swagger to it. It had this real like, like, like you're strutting down New York, a street in New York, like thinking you're king shit, but you actually are king shit. <laughs> um, and it was just fucking cool. <sighs> um, yeah, man. I, I, I look. I, I actually when we first started that album, I actually thought it was um, really was going to be something really different again and really cool. But, um, but those sessions, those sessions for that album, I guess they started off really, really well. And I, but the only, the issue was that the, they weren't really songs. They were just a bunch of cool ideas that probably were the basis of songs, but they needed, they needed sculpting and they needed to be, um, we needed, we needed someone to come in and help us kind of turn them into songs and give them more dynamics and, and, and work them up more. I mean, at that, at that point, they were just really fucking cool ideas that could have become almost like the sound, they were almost like sound check ideas, you know? Um, Lots of little riffs and jams and little bits and, melodies and stuff but not quite a finished product yeah that's it yeah yeah but there was definitely a a genesis of something there was a spark there that was like oh this could be like this is different again like this is something else totally different again for us um and i think what was cool about it is that dan because i guess i'm particularly on diorama and young modern he really um, wanted to control a lot of the music, but it was like Dan, Dan had let the reins out a lot. So he wasn't trying to control it as much. He was just getting in the studio with 
with us and the, and an engineer and just we were all just saying let's just see what happens let's just get excited about what we're doing and see where it goes and i mean it felt like it felt like the right thing to do was almost go back it felt like a little bit going back to our roots you know about you know just about being about the band um yeah just kind of over over time like i mean i don't know what went wrong but something went wrong and it didn't it didn't pan out how i thought it was going to pan out we need we just we needed someone we needed someone to steer the ship yeah and um you know we probably you know to be honest we needed someone like a like a david bottrell or or a, a producer to help take those ideas and turn them into songs if um, only that, if only we could find that person yeah that person's out there <sighs> we'll find them one day never say never that's right thank you justin my final question for you today and what I do on the podcast to keep it as original as I can is every guest that's been on, it doesn't matter if they're an actor, a director, a musician, they get to choose the final piece of music that's played on the podcast. So after our interview today is all edited and out there for the world to listen to, the final piece of music that's played is chosen by you. I'm going to put you on the spot. You can't come back to me and let me know in a few days. Bands find this the hardest because you've probably got a million songs you love. But what would you love today to be the outro piece of music that might be something personal to you to play out after today's episode? Okay, well, it, considering what we chatted about at the front end of the podcast, I think it needs to be Led Zeppelin. Beautiful. Um, just what Zeppelin song are we going to choose? Quite it's, a few to choose from. <laughs> I almost feel like I should pull up a... You know what I'm going to do? Pull up the whole... Not the whole, but yeah. No, I'll just put. I'm gonna pull up. I think we're gonna go with something off Led Zeppelin Four. Oh, what do we do? Oh, there's so many good. Led Zeppelin Four is fucking ridiculous. It's insane. It's like a best of. It's like the Battle of Evermore, Four Sticks, going to California. Oh, that's so good. When the levee breaks, I I feel like. You know what? This is what we're going to do. Just as a homage to Mr. Bonham, we're going to go with When the Levee Breaks. What a tune. No one has picked any Led Zeppelin so far out of 240 episodes, which uh, means for the next week when I edit this episode, I'll be then going down and listening to probably Led Zeppelin for the next six months solidly, which is always a good thing to do. Yeah, man. No, I think I think that that um that is such a when the levee breaks is such a classic Bonham sitting back in the beat and just I don't know it's all Bonham so that's my choice when the levee breaks. Thank you for coming on the podcast, dude. It's been a while coming, and your time I know is very limited, especially being a father of two and a married man and a all the shit that goes with it. But I just want you to really um, understand how much I appreciate your time because you're without, you know, kissing your ass, an absolute inspiration to me, your albums, your music, your songwriting, and just your performances were, they changed my life. And it's because of the bands I listen to now is because of you. So thank you. Oh, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for the support. You know, I, 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 I always look at, 
um, the supporters of the band, like if without the people that support the band, you, you're not, you can't be successful. So, you know, I was at every UK show. I was at London, the ballroom. I'm have been at rock city, Wolverhampton on the freak show tour, oh, wow. Reading, Leeds. Awesome. Um, and did I, you I to, did you go to any of the, um, Brixton shows? Yes, I did. I think it was on the neon ballroom tour. I bloody love playing at Brixton. That that's a great venue. So good, and every every time you got better, and it was just, you know, when you just look back at memories, and it's like you can take yourself. When I listen to a song now, it just takes you to that moment, and I can remember the moment I hear stuff like, um, it probably is emotion sickness. I can just think of being in Nottingham, and you guys coming on, and it just being fucking epic, and you know, just I miss you guys, and I I really hope one day everything can come good again because i've listened to daniel's album i genuinely i love it um but nothing is nothing is silver chair for me and i just there's a gap in the industry that i think has never been filled which at times you surely can feel too there's a silver chair gap in the industry <laughs> there is there fucking is there's not another band like silver chair there isn't there's bands that want to be silver chair and there's bands that write riffs that sound like something that could come off freak show or fog stomp but there's only one silver chair and I miss you guys. So I do hope one day, even if it's when you're 65 and you're like the Rolling Stones going out there, that we get to see you on stage again. Yeah, well, we'll just keep coming back to, uh, we'll just keep coming back to Justin. <laughs> I might call the episode Never Say Never. <laughs> oh, yeah, Never Say Never. You never know. I don't know. You never know. It's been a blast, man. I'm uh, I'm going to release this as my milestone episode, episode 250, which is a big deal. So episode 200 was my dad. It was almost Keanu Reeves, but I'm saving episode 250 for you. So thank you. Oh, awesome, man. That's so rad that you, that's so rad that you had your dad on your, your podcast. I did. I, he's, 80, he's 83 years old, and he talked all about World War II and the life that he had, and it was very different to what we have. And uh, I just thought, how do I celebrate episode 200? And I was in talks with Deftones, and I was in talks with Keanu Reeves, and I went, no, my dad. Yeah, that's that's nice. I've got that forever that's now, nice. haven't I? That's awesome, man. I love it. You know what? I, I was asked to be part of this um this book in Australia in Australia and it was like it was like done by a famous Australian, I can't think of his name, Samuel Fuck something. Anyway <laughs> Samuel um, Fuck something, that's his name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's 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 known in Australia. He was an actor. He's like he does a lot of voice acting. He's I really like him. He's a really, he, he seems like a, a nice fellow, but he, he's done this series of books and it goes to, I think it goes to charity and it's like, dear, it's done. I think it did, did like, he's done like dear dad, dear mum, dear lover, you know, all these. Yeah. And basically gets like prominent people to write a letter to that person. Um, and I, they, they asked me to, to do uh, a dear dad and literally like i had no time for it so i was like fuck how do i do something that will be that, that, that that's meaningful and that just get you know just nails it straight away without having to do a big like monologue and i just remember writing dear dad um i'm taking a leaf out of your book because you're a man of few words you're my hero you always have been and i love you
Oh man. <sighs> and you get it. Beautifully right? put, less is more and it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. I told I told my dad on the episode that he was my hero and I, I meant it and people are always like, you know, who's your, who's your superhero? Is it this person or like, you know, Iron Man or Spider-Man or a musician or a band or Michael Jackson or and I'm like, my dad, like he is my absolute superhero in this whole world and uh the fact that I got to record with him and him just talk like he would and not even know what a podcast is and just have a microphone <laughs> and chatting at the dinner table for an hour and a half about the world and how he met my mom and that how I came into the world and all this. And honestly, it's magic. And I'm like, I've got that forever. That's so, that's so c- cool. I really, I really like that. And you know what, you know, the, the funny thing about me saying that and you saying that is that I now think how, like how am I, my boy's going to like view me? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? All of a sudden you start all, all those things like, just how much you love your own children you go holy shit that's how much my parents loved me when i was like when i was being when i was being a little shit and misbehaving and doing this they still loved me as much as that yeah they just they were just like i will like you are everything to me and like you just yeah it's funny when um i hope you have get the chance to have kids because it really is it's it's one of the most wonderful um things you can ever do it's it's fucking awesome and you got two of them at once it wasn't like one and then a few years later you're like here you go here's two here's two for you ben two boys as well like they're and i can tell they're really they're very much like they're very much like they're boys boys like they're so busy and they're like they just want to get into everything and like they're only one and they're just yeah um i think we're in a we're in for it think of the day you can sit down and go right boys listen to this this is dad playing emotion sickness or freak or slave and they'll be like fucking hell dad yeah is that really you that's not you and they'll be playing along in your music room get one on drums one on guitar that's right you know it's funny this the studio my studio um a few times when i've come i've brought them in here and i sat them at the piano and i not not probably not the drums so much yet because it kind of it's just a bit too loud for them yeah but i was like you guys have no idea just yet just how cool <laughs> you know particularly if they particularly if they kind of take up you know music oh it's gonna be amazing you'll be yeah, that producer you'll be like come on son let's record this yeah i mean you know they'll probably end up being you know i don't know they could it could be tradies they could be buddy anything so who, who knows but look if they do like music they'll uh they'll certainly enjoy the studio that's for sure ben thanks so much for your time i know it's late i know how short and limited your time is we've talked about it quite a lot on today but i just want you to know how much i appreciate today and it's been a pleasure um truly uh and i'm, I'm so so grateful for you giving up your time and coming on no worries man i uh thanks for the persistence and uh, i appreciate it. it's been a really enjoyable in chatting with you So there it is. There's my interview with me and the amazing Ben Gillies. I've waited so long to talk to Ben. It was genuinely a dream come true. I don't mind admitting that I'm a Silverchair fanboy. They changed my life. If you look at photos of me back at my parents' house when I was 15, all I wore was Silverchair t-shirts. I remember when I was a kid and Freak Show came out, and this will show my age. 
I would go to Virgin Megastore, sit there, and before the album came out, usually two weeks prior, you could go get some headphones and choose an album to listen to basically before it came out, the promo release. And I would go after college or school, sit there, put the headphones on in the shop and listen to Freak Show before it came out every single song, nearly every night after school or college. And I would just absolutely be besotted with the songs, so excited. And I couldn't believe it when I got to go and see them in Nottingham. They were just as good as I'd hoped. I later then got to see them in London, Manchester. I saw them at Reading Festival. And then obviously Silverchair broke up and absolutely broke my heart. But to sit down with Ben, go through this whole trip down nostalgia lane, it was a dream come true. You can build up a guest and feel really excited and sometimes you're not sure if they're going to deliver or be just as much as you've anticipated because you've built it up so high. But Ben is one of the nicest people I've ever had on the podcast. We've kept in contact since. We're texting all the time. And I can tell you, he's listened to the interview and he absolutely loves it. So Ben, if you're listening again, thank you so much for coming on. You really have made my dreams come true. And to celebrate episode 250 is just amazing with you. So thank you. And to all you guys at home, I really hope you've enjoyed today's interview as much as me. It's been a long time coming and I wouldn't have picked anyone else to share this occasion with. If you've really enjoyed today's episode, all I ask is that you go on markandme.com and share it. Maybe you're on Twitter and if you are and you see the podcast out there, just hit that retweet button. It's literally the click of two buttons. It will cost you nothing and maybe some of your followers, like me who grew up in the 90s and absolutely love Silverchair, might just jump on and listen to them. If you're on Facebook, why not hit the share button? Or if you're on Instagram, just like the update because it helps the algorithm, helps me boost up there. I'll never know how Instagram works, but if you like it, maybe it will show up on other people's feeds. Or if you're really generous, put it on your stories because then more and more people will see it. I want so many people to hear this interview because Ben doesn't do a lot of press and it's something that has meant so much to me and I'm so proud of. So let's get it out there and get everyone talking again about this incredible band. Also, I do have a Patreon account, and only last week I released the whole new series of specials called The Lost Tapes. These are a series of interviews that I'm releasing once every month for people to say thank you on Patreon who supported me. I will be releasing these special interviews that are only for Patreon. This is my way of saying thank you for supporting me. And last week I released an amazing interview with an incredible band called The Lottery Winners. And the only way that you're going to access that is to go via Patreon and sign up. And I'm doing that for only $3.99 a month for you guys out there, which is an absolute bargain. You genuinely can't buy a McDonald's meal for that. And I'm going to give you that every month. Not only that, some stickers, some badges, some exclusive prizes thanks to my good friends at Richer Sounds and so much more. So if you can afford that, please jump on there because it all goes right back into the podcast and allows me to go out there and record more interviews for you guys at home. But people don't understand, this podcast is completely independent. So much so, it's just me. I go out there, I organise the interviews, I get the interviews recorded, produced, edited, mixed down, published for you guys out there. I do all the promotion myself. I am a one-man team. So if you've really enjoyed today's interview, please just go on markandme.com and sign up on Patreon. Again, I can't thank Ben enough for coming on the show. Please check out his solo work as well. It's on Spotify or iTunes or all those different places. It's great and you should support this guy. I'll be back in only a few days' time with a brand new episode. So until then, listen to Silverchair, look after yourself, take care, 
Thank you for supporting me for 250 episodes and I'll speak to you all very soon.